Good morning, First Baptist. We're uh, continuing to meet, obviously, in the way we have been. That'll continue for some time. We're, we're not sure when uh, we'll be able to all meet again, right? But we'll, it'll just make that meeting all the sweeter, I think, when we finally get to do it. I trust that you're doing well. And if there are things on your heart and mind this morning, I would, uh, I would ask you to submit any prayer requests uh, in, the, in whatever forum you may be in. If you're on Facebook watching right now, it'd be a great time to submit a prayer request in the comments section as you're watching this video. And I believe you can do the same thing if you're watching on our YouTube channel. But I trust you're doing well. Please know that we're all praying for you. Uh, the staff is meeting together still on Tuesdays, and we're all praying for you as well. <clears throat> and, and you can kind of feel it, can't you? And, and, and what I mean by that is the world that we're living in is at war. And it's not just war in the sense of conflict, but literally you can feel it being in war with nature as well as we're fighting this virus. And even as we're fighting this virus, there are other conflicts raging around us. Uh, the Institute for Economics and Peace had reported several findings in regard to war back in 2016. In the report they submitted, they said that over the past 10 years, 81 countries have become more peaceful, while 79 have become less peaceful. Only 10 nations in the world were currently not at war at that time. There had been over 100,000 deaths in battle, which had increased since 2008. The UN Refugee Agency said that there is currently 57 million displaced peoples around the world. We're aching for peace. We're aching for peace uh, between countries on a global level. We're aching for peace even between us and nature, as you can feel it right now. Uh, nature, this virus, warring against us. And what we desperately want, what we're aching for, is a sense of peace. Peace in the, in the middle of so much conflict, in the middle of so much anxiety. There was a study done in Forbes magazine where they polled 771 people. I asked people to participate. That's how many participated in a survey they did, asking, what do you want most in life? What came in on that list at number four was peace. That's what people wanted more than anything on that list they were generating. And one person responded and said this. They said, I have a lack of clarity about who I am and my purpose. Then the magazine went on to say, we long for peace, desperately. Peace from noise, chatter, pressure, responsibilities. I added viruses to that list. We also want peace from the painful thumping inside our own heads, the conflicts and strain we inflict on ourselves every minute to be better, stronger, smarter, prettier, thinner, better parents, fill in the blank. You could probably add peace from any financial pressure you're starting to feel as this virus goes on. So we are a people that want peace, and this subject of peace uh, is a big one. And Christ had much to say on this subject of peace. As a matter of fact, in the book of Matthew, whenever he's 
uh, climbing up on a mountain and he's seeing all the people that are gathering around him. He raised the bar on this subject of peace. Not only was there a hopeful expectation that those who would trust in him would enjoy his peace, but he raises the bar up. And we see it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Christ said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. So the challenge to us is not to be a mere holder of peace, not to be a mere experiencer of peace, but rather to go to the next level and be a maker and a bringer of peace, which is the subject I want to discuss here in our time together. How can I be, how can we be a bringer of peace? And the book I want to look at today, it's not a book that we uh, put our fingers and noses in very often. You already heard Jody mention it during the kids' corner this morning. It's the second to the last book of the Old Testament. It's the book of Zechariah. It's called a minor prophet, not because it's uh, less important or Zechariah was less important than the other prophets, but because it's quite a bit smaller. It's in those range of really small books you see from about uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the way until we get to the New Testament. So it will be the book of Zechariah. And I want to read from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And if you would uh, read out loud, I know typically we stand whenever we're uh, uh, going through the, the text, reading through the text on a Sunday morning. If you want to, feel free to stand. Uh, we do that out of honor for God's word. But I would also ask, just so we can keep this participatory in some way, that you would read the words off the screen with me. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Thank you for joining with me on that. As we approach Easter Sunday, we're taking this prophetic look at the events of Easter. We're actually looking at Easter in the Old Testament. And if we were to look at the end of the Gospels, we would see Jesus approaching two men walking on a road to a place called Emmaus. And these men had witnessed the events that had gone on. They had witnessed the death of Christ and were not yet aware of Christ's resurrection. So they're trying to figure it all out. And who comes up and walks up behind them but Jesus Christ himself. He'd been eavesdropping on their conversation. He then comes to them and says this, O foolish ones! and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So that's what we're doing right now. As we approach, we're almost upon the Easter event itself. We're going back and we're looking at what the prophets had to say. And this morning we're looking at this prophet named Zechariah. 
And I want to take a deeper look around this event that was foretold with such clarity and specificity. Uh, Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the triumphant entry on this foal, this colt of a donkey. As we go through it this morning, um, we'll look at the meaning of this passage. I want to look at it this way. First, we'll see that the king comes peacefully. The manner in which Christ came into that city was a peaceful one. And he came to establish a peaceful kingdom. And then finally, we'll talk about how can we be peacemakers? How can we be bringers of peace and not conflict or anything that we wouldn't want to bring? So, Let's talk about this a bit. And before I go back to the text, uh, I want to talk about the immediate context of Zechariah chapter 9. So here's a, a really brief history of what had been going on in Israel. So during the time of Solomon, things started going south in a, in a real way. And by the time you get to King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom of Israel is split into a northern part called Israel and into a southern part called Judah. Israel... The northern king would eventually be uh, taken over by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah would be conquered by the Babylonians. If you read the book of Daniel, that was during that time of exile uh, when the Israelites uh, were in exile in Babylon. But then came another group, a group called the Persians. And the Persians came in, they basically wiped out everybody. And the Persians told the Israelites, go back to your homeland. Go back to your homeland and, and, and live there. And that's what they did. And they come back. They came back in three waves, back to their homeland, the promised land of Israel. But when they get there, the temple had been destroyed. And there's two prophets that come in at that time, one named Haggai and then our prophet we're looking at today named Zechariah. Zechariah took on the role of preaching repentance. In the book of Zechariah, he gives a number of visions and things. And then we come to Zechariah chapter 9, and at first, God is portrayed as a divine warrior, and he's going across the land, and he's setting up security for Israel. He's taking out their enemies. But then we get to the, the section that I just read, and now there's a real focus, and God is no longer being portrayed as this divine warrior. He's coming as a king. But he's coming in as a different kind of king. So in Zechariah chapter 9, the security of Israel had been secured. We come now to verses 9 and 10. And I want to take a, look, uh, a closer look there at what we read in verse 9. It said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. So these are two lines basically saying the same thing, referring to those who are living in Jerusalem. First, as a daughter of Zion, that was another name for Jerusalem, and then as a daughter of Jerusalem itself. And they're told not to be afraid. As a matter of fact, they're told to rejoice. They're told to shout out. And why is that? Well, we see it in the next sentence. It says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So they aren't to be fearful or scared that their king is coming. And this is a long Awaited king. By the way, this was written centuries before Christ would finally make that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he's described as righteous. And that describes both his character and how he's going to reign. He'll reign righteously. He's coming riding on a donkey. And that is significant. If a king came to a city, 
Uh, and Alexander the Great, the king of the, the Greeks, was, would do this. If a king came to a city riding on a horse, that was a sign of war. But not the way Christ is coming. Coming in on a, on a donkey, and even a purebred donkey, the, the colt or the foal of a donkey, meant that he was coming in peace. Now, it, Israel had witnessed uh, horrible, violent kings, their own kings. Uh, kings that had killed the prophets, kings that had brought in child sacrifice. So this was a very special king, and Christ would fulfill Zechariah 9 in Matthew chapter 21. And there we read in Matthew 21, verses 7 through 9, they, speaking of the disciples, brought a donkey. Christ had said, go into town, get a donkey, uh, and the cult of the donkey, there was actually two, two beasts that he would ride in. One would probably be leading the animal he was sitting on. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, on, put them and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is why we call it Palm Sunday, because these palms were spread out on the road. This was, again, a, a, a sign of a joyous, triumphal entry of a king. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So we have this wonderful entry. And the world is just longing for this kind of a king. A peaceful king. I was reading a little bit about uh, probably one of the most violent leaders uh, in our world at this time, Kim Jong-un of North Korea. And he rules with extreme brutality. Uh, his nation is one of the worst violators of human rights. And in, North in North Korea, some of the crimes that have been detailed uh, during his reign is extermination, murder, enslavement, torture, imprisonment, rape. There have been forced abortions, sexual violence of other ways. Persecution on political, religious, racial, and gender grounds. The forcible transfer of populations out and the enforced disappearance of persons and the inhumane act of knowingly causing prolonged starvation among his people. Unfortunately, this is the sinful, fallen world that we're living in right now. And we're longing for this king to come that's going to bring peace. So in the second part of this passage, in, in verse 10, we see that the king establishes a peaceful kingdom, the kind of kingdom that we're all craving. And it's portrayed also in, in, in chapter 9. We see the same righteous king establishing a peaceful kingdom. And notice what it says in verse 10 of Zechariah chapter 9. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So what we see in this verse is the destruction of all of the instruments of war. He references cutting off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim was in the northern kingdom of Israel. And the war horse from Jerusalem, that would be the, the southern kingdom. The battle bow shall be cut off. And then what else? He'll speak peace to the nations. 
meaning that those blessings that had previously been reserved for the people of Israel are going to be extended out to everybody, the whole world. And we see this extent of his kingdom. It says from sea to sea and from the river, that's a reference to the Euphrates River, out to the ends of the earth. So this is going to be a kingdom that encompasses all of the earth, every single person. Now, as it plays out, Jesus only fulfilled verse 9 of the passage that we looked at. And it won't be until his second coming that he fulfills verse 10. So there are 2,000 years. Verse 9, speaking of the entrance of Jesus, we call it his, it's his first advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ. And then looking forward for us to verse 10, when peace will fully and finally come. So we're longing for this different kind of a kingdom. So where is it? As we're going through the book of Hebrews, from time to time, I would talk about this idea of things being uh, already and not yet. So is Christ's kingdom here already? Well, in one sense, it is. It is because the inhabitants of the kingdom, those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, are living here right now. So in that sense, it's already here, but yet it is not yet fully here because we're still living in a time of war and conflict, and as I've said, even as we're experiencing firsthand, conflict with nature itself. But we can feel it, can't we? We can feel that desire for complete and total peace. We have this longing, this craving for it. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful quote about these, this idea of having unfulfilled longings. And he says this, the Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And then he goes on, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. The fact that we desire this world, this coronavirus-free world, is one signal that there is a kingdom to come in which it will not exist. One of complete and total peace. And until then, I want to go back to this challenge Christ gives us to bring, to be peacemakers, to bring peace. And the question is, okay, well then how can I be a peacemaker? How can I be a peacemaker? In his book uh, called Sermon on the Mount, A Foundation for Understanding, there's a professor named Gulich, and he talks about the role of Christ's followers, the role we play as being peacemakers. He says the peace intended is not merely that of political and economic stabilities in the Greco-Roman world, but peace in the Old Testament is an inclusive sense of wholeness, all that constitutes well-being. The peacemakers, therefore, are not simply those who bring peace between two conflicting parties, 
but those who actively at work make it, but those who are actively at work making peace, bringing about wholeness and well-being among the alienated. This is the kind of peacemaking we're talking about. How do we do that? I want to suggest, first of all, listen lovingly. Be a loving listener. And this, this sounds so simple, but it can be so challenging. And if you've ever really actively listened to someone, you know that afterwards you can often feel exhausted. Uh, and I know one of the problems I have is that when I'm listening to somebody, what I'm actually doing is just sort of formulating the thing that I want to say next. And when I'm thinking about what I want to say, I'm not really listening to what it is they want to say. I even uh, did it once. I remember when uh, Melissa was taking a counseling class on why husbands misunderstand their wives. This was just so poetic. It's so easy to quickly form a judgment and opinion while she was, even as she was telling me in the counseling class how husbands misunderstand their wives, I was already formulating my defense on why I was such a good listener. That we need to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. Bonhoeffer says it this way, Christians should listen long and patiently so that they will understand their fellow Christians' need. And again, there's this wonderful phrase out there called active listening. It's when you are signifying to the person to whom you're listening to by your body language is you're actually listening to what they have to say. And, it, and it, you do it by maintaining eye contact and by leaning in, by maybe offering quick paraphrases back of what they may be saying. And all of you, many of you right now, you're in a little laboratory there in your home where you can put this into practice. Parents kids and vice versa, sibling to sibling. This is a chance that you can practice listening in this way. And if you are at home by yourself, you saw some of those challenges maybe that we put on Facebook this past week, I would, I would suggest, I would challenge you to reach out to somebody. Give somebody a call. Someone that you suspect may need to be listened to. Maybe somebody else that's living on their own. So listen lovingly. Listen to understand. And secondly, rebuke respectfully. Rebuke respectfully. You know, we talked about Christ's humble, peace, peaceful entrance into Jerusalem on that cult. However, if you go down just a few verses, you see one of the sharpest, uh, you go down to verse 12 of chapter 21 of Matthew, and you see one of the sharpest rebukes that Jesus gave anybody it was when he walked into the temple with the money changers and he started turning tables over. So, so being a peacemaker does not mean that you don't call sin out when you need to call it out. Doesn't mean that you don't confront when you need to confront. That's also part of being a peacemaker. Uh, a guy named Thomas Trenza, he's an English professor at Seattle Pacific University, had something very insightful to say about these kinds of peacemakers that know how to rebuke respectfully. He says this, peacemakers are honored insofar as they speak about peace as something already victoriously won that we can celebrate as part of our glorious past or as something that they will be won uh, in, in the other world. They continue to be dishonored insofar as they continue to point out injustice, hypocrisy, and suffering. They are noble when their actions bring to light problems far away from us. They are an odious nuisance when they point out our own sins. 
Yes, we have a responsibility to point out sins. That is to say, to rebuke. But we do so respectfully. We talk to people the way we want to be spoken to. We can keep a calm tone. And you should be just as heartbroken over the sin as the person that you're speaking to. So it's something we do respectfully. We rebuke respectfully. And finally, we're called, and this is maybe one of the toughest and one of the keys, we're called to bless our enemies. Bless our enemies. Jesus was very explicit about this. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Who might you know that just hates your guts, who's difficult, someone that perhaps you need to set good boundaries with, however, someone that you don't need to have hateful thoughts towards. There's a, a story told by Erwin Lutzer of a young woman, newly married, and as it turns out, the young woman had been uh, severely molested by her stepfather, and unfortunately, all that anger and bitterness was now coming out towards her new husband. So she went to a pastor and was asking him, well, what should I do here? And he brought to her these same words from Matthew 5. You should pray for him, love him, even in spite of what he's done. Now, she found that to be absolutely revolting. Uh, and and in, in one sense, who can blame her? But the pastor told her until she did this, she would never be free to love her husband. So painfully, she decided to apply this text of Scripture. She actually took her stepfather a birthday cake, and rather than speaking evil of him, she decided to speak well of him. And then upon further reflection, she realized that there were, in spite of the horrible things he'd done, there were good things that she could say about him. And in spite of that horrible sin against her, the fact was that in many ways... She came to a conclusion he had been, in some ways, a good father. So she prayed for him three times a day. She prayed that God would bless him. And that's how and what she did. Then she made this crucial statement that was very important to the survival of her marriage. She said, now I'm free to love my husband. That isn't to say she ever put herself back in a position where she could be hurt. But through that act of blessing one who had persecuted her and treated her horribly, she was able now to love her husband. This is such a big part of peacemaking. And maybe for now it, it could just be being quiet in your heart and mind towards someone. Um, it could be uh, towards the people that you're stuck in a house with. Or maybe you need to do something nice. For somebody that you're really struggling with right now, even within your, in your own home, or maybe you can make a phone call to somebody. So putting this all together, enjoy and bring the peace of Christ. Enjoy and bring the peace of Christ. Be one who both enjoys peace internally and brings it externally in whatever sphere you may be in. And in closing, I want to share something about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you don't know who that is, I, I mentioned him before, he's a Lutheran priest. Uh, he was actually executed in Nazi Germany for being involved in a plot to kill Hitler. And thinking about the peace that Christ brought and this idea of spreading it, he said this, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. 
At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, even though I know we're in one right now, but in the thick of foes. Please pray with me. Lord, it is, it is so important that we remember that you were a bringer of peace. Lord Jesus, you were and are the Prince of Peace. And you give us peace. And Lord, help us to discipline our minds, our heart and our minds, to be still and to know that you are God, and in that find great peace and joy. And I pray now that you would prepare our hearts as we go into this very special time. Lord, as we remember what you did for us on the cross. And Lord, as we're entering into this Holy Week, I pray that you would be in our presence Lord, in a special way. I pray, God, that we would honor you now, that we would truly remember you now. And all that you've done for us. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. We're now going to go into a time of communion. And I know this is different. Believe me, I, I'm, I'm sure many of you have never done anything like this before. I can tell you that, that I haven't either. But even there in your own homes, even though we can't be the church gathered the way we normally do physically, I do pray that this will be a special time for you uh, and your family and whomever you may be with or there by yourself. And I would ask that we, we do this. I just got through speaking about Christ being the bringer of peace, and he truly is. And he accomplished this task ultimately through his death and through his resurrection. So my prayer is that you would also sense his peace right now. And we're going to have a few moments of reflection before we actually go about the task and, and, and take the elements and while we're reflecting, I would just ask that if there is someone, uh, either in your household or that you need to reach out to, just think as we're meditating, think upon Christ's example as being the bringer of peace as he arrived in Jerusalem. And pray and be thoughtful about how you could also be a maker and bringer of peace where you are. Just take a few minutes. Sam will play on the piano and, and meditate quietly on that truth.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord God, I pray for the peace of everyone out there today. God, I pray for peace in my own heart. Give us strength and trust in you that you are the master and of the universe and in control of all things. We love you and trust you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you. I pray that you've been blessed. Have a great day. By the grace of God, we'll see you soon. Take care.